Hello and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. Today we're looking at Season 2, Episode 6 of Star Trek Picard entitled 241. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Michael Merrick, the media professor. And I'm Rodney Cup, the philosophy professor. And you can find our announcements about new episodes and other content by following us on Twitter at Trek underscore Academy. <clears throat> Sorry. To subscribe your app to the podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. You can either subscribe right there or find links to us on other podcast sites. And Rodney, kind of cool news for us, at least, that last week's podcast received the most listens and downloads of any of our podcasts since the one we did about Nepenthe, the episode Nepenthe in the first season of Picard. So that was kind of cool for us this past week. How about that? Another Frakes directed episode. I guess I that's true. Yeah. Correctly. Yeah. Or maybe uh -huh. not. You know what? I'm going to scratch that. I'm going to start over. Um, great news. And we can see a pattern here, maybe, that the more popular or well-received a Star Trek episode is, the more podcast listens we get. And let's just say right now, we're grateful for every listen and download. So thank you to our listeners. So first on the agenda for the podcast today is a brief but possibly nonlinear plot outline of Two for One. And with our summary, here is Professor Rodney Cup. Okay, well, at the gala, Gerardi adds the team's IDs to the security system with help from the Borg Queen, who's somehow inside Gerardi, and everyone is admitted. And they find Renee Picard there, but she appears to be drinking heavily. Talon discovers that Renee is texting Q, telling him that she's decided not to go to Europa. So Renee leaves the gala abruptly, and Picard tries to follow her, but he is stopped by Adam Sung, of all people. He has made a generous donation to the Europa mission, and when he tells them that Picard is dangerous, security is summoned to seize him. At this time, the Borg Queen somehow kills the lights in the venue, and Gerardi appears at the top of a staircase singing Pat Benatar's Shadows of the Night. Fortunately, the live band knows that song, and they join in. And the experience floods Gerardi's body with endorphins, which allows the Borg Queen to take control of it. Anyway, this distraction allows Picard to elude security, find Renee, and give her a badly needed pep talk and it works but as picard is as but as picard is escorting her back to the gala a crazed dr sung tries to run her over but picard shoves her out of the path of sung's car and it strikes him instead the crew and talon take picard to dr ramirez who restores his heartbeat to normal and stabilizes him but he doesn't regain consciousness. After Ramirez leaves, Talon proposes using her neuro-optic interceptor to get inside Picard's mind and wake him up. Now, meanwhile, Sung is despondent over his failure to keep his end of the bargain with Q, 
looks like Renee's going on that mission. And he goes home and tells Corey that he's going to lose her, even though he would do anything to keep her safe. Now, after he leaves Corey's room, she learns from the internet that her father is now a disgraced scientist. She also finds pictures that appear to be of her, but she doesn't remember them. And she also finds a trove of her father's video logs, suggesting that Corey is the last in a long line of ill-fated daughters that her father created. And at the very end of the episode, we see Gerardi walking the streets of Los Angeles. Or is it the Borg Queen walking the streets of Los Angeles? Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Rodney. Thank you very much. Before we talk about the philosophy and the themes and the morals to the story, here are a few things about the episode we uh, want to touch on first. And as we always say, we, tr we try to avoid the Easter eggs that everybody else notices uh, that so many articles talk about, but we still have some things we're going to talk about in this episode. Well, I mean, first thing maybe we should mention is that we speculated last time that Jonathan Frakes might direct this episode after last week's and indeed, he did. And it does make sense after all this episode basically picks up exactly where the last one left off at the gala. Yeah, I, I imagine they essentially shot them together as a as a single episode, but it was divided in the editing for uh, for presentation to the to the audience. And. And this is this is the first time I think in all of Star Trek we've ever had a director direct two episodes in a row, this time with Jonathan Frakes and and Lee Thompson um, for the two previous episodes that were shot together. Mm. So that's that's kind of an interesting development. In this episode, we get the big reveal that Corey is, well, we're not exactly sure, in some way, an artificial person, just like Dodge. And Soji, maybe not a flesh and blood android like Picard is now, but one way or the other, the result of genetic manipulations. And Corey goes through a very similar process of discovery like Dodge and Soji did, finding out that, yes, she's the end of a long process of Soong's experimentation. And you note that I'm not sure all of the pictures she saw were young versions of herself uh, and the different previous daughters, if you will, had different names too. So, uh, but the, the, the parallel to what we saw Dodge and Soji go through uh, in the first season of Picard was interesting. It almost felt like deja vu, frankly. <laughs> we see Talon holding a, a pencil-like device that she uses for multiple things. And as you mentioned in the summary, Rodney, she calls it a neuro-optic interceptor. And it's similar in many ways to a device that Gary Seven used in Assignment Earth in the original series that he called a servo. Mm. And over the years, many people have noted that Gary Seven's servo is in many ways very similar to Doctor Who's sonic screwdriver. Right. Uh, in fact, the sonic screwdriver in Doctor Who and Gary Seven's servo both premiered on the air 
almost simultaneously in 1968. Dr. Who, of course, did continued stories back then, but uh, they were essentially within a few weeks of each other. They appeared in 1968. So, so the one was almost certainly not inspired by the other. I did note an entry on Wikipedia that suggests without any evidence that possibly both of them were inspired by a communications device in The Man from Uncle. Hmm. Rodney, I don't know if you remember that series. The, 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 the secret agents on The Man from Uncle had a communications device disguised as a pen so they could carry it in their pocket, but uh, then communicate back to Uncle headquarters. And that premiered about four years before the sonic screwdriver and the servo. I also note that, that uh, in that scene, Tannen knows what a mind meld is. Right. I, I guess she gets around because she also, did you see this? She also uh, briefly spoke Romulan, according to the subtitles. What's I, up with that? I didn't notice that, although I've seen other people note that some of the the um, insignia on devices she uses has Romulan characters on it, apparently. I mean, Gary Seven recognized Spock immediately as a Vulcan and said, you two aren't supposed to, Vulcans and humans aren't supposed to be together yet in 1968. So yes, there is some kind of knowledge of other, other star systems and possibly of other times. I wonder, I mean, is it possible that Laris is Romulan and has been modified to look human, just like Kirk was modified to look Romulan in the Enterprise incident? Maybe That's she right. really is. Yeah, maybe she really is an ancestor of Laris. Who knows? As we have noted before in our podcast, the storytelling technique of starting at an important point and then going back to start in the beginning is called in medias res. That's Latin, but it's for in the middle of things. And you see this all the time in TV and lots of other um, written, written stories. It often starts with a desperate situation, uh, often one in which one of the characters appears to be about to die, you know, a very critical situation. And then on TV, we'll always go, you know, however minutes or hours or days earlier, um, it's not at all unusual in TV. It's not just Star Trek that occasionally does it. You see in police procedurals and all kinds of different shows use this. Uh, in the early days of written literature, hundreds of years ago, using in medias res was almost mandatory. It was the standard, the conventional way of writing in some of the earliest written literature, the Iliad and the Odyssey both start exactly that way at a critical point, And then they back up to see how we got there. I did note, and if I, I like this episode a lot, if there was a flaw, it was that the, the subtitles told or, or the, the, the captions told us that soon hitting Picard with his car is less than 15 minutes before they're all together at Teresa's clinic. And how did they get there? They got there really fast. Um, you know, did they swipe somebody's car? Did they call a taxi? Um, did they have some remote control way of triggering the transporters on La Serena with nobody, no, none, none of the people on the ship? Um, but remember, La Serena is still way on the other side of the planet. So that if there was a flaw, it's just, I mean, they did it to streamline the story and not yeah. 
to show this process of how they got there, but and 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 then also how they got the doctor there, Dr. Teresa there, so That's quickly right. within 15 minutes. And Los Angeles is huge, right? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, mean, it takes forever to get from one point of the city to the other. It must be the coincidence of they're right down the street from each other, but that yeah, could be. Know. You mentioned the song Agnes Sings, uh, Pat Benatar's Shadows of the Night. And I think it's clear that the lyrics have meaning to the storyline. And just some of them, uh, this is not all of the lyrics, but baby, take my hand, you'll be all right. Surrender all your dreams to me tonight. They'll come true in the end. It's a cold world when you keep it all to yourself. You can't hide on the inside all the pain you've ever felt. These are all things that the Borg Queen is essentially promising to Agnes. Yeah, I agree. I, I think these lyrics, they fit this, this subplot perfectly, like a glove. And also, did you notice the scene early in the episode in which the Borg Queen literally took Gerardi's hand? Actually, there's more than one. There was that taking the hand thing when she's bowing on stage and we see the queen, they have their hands and hands together. So that's right. Yeah, I'm not sure I would want to do that. Even, <laughs> well, even if the board queen's body is dead, I don't know. No. <laughs> I really liked seeing the historical display of spacecraft and mm -hmm. missions during the gala. Uh, many of them are very familiar that we know about today. Some are unique to the Star Trek timeline. And we've noted before that we know that Earth is more advanced in space travel than our reality um, of space travel. But there were a lot of little things thrown in there. One of the displays that had uh, a Saturn V in it also had a SpaceX rocket in it, for example. And then the most obvious thing is seeing this, the space shuttle, Orbital Vehicle 165, it is the same space shuttle, including that OV number seen in the opening credits of Star Trek Enterprise. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it was in those credits implies that its formal name is Enterprise because the Enterprise yeah. opening credits had just a series of sailing ships and other vessels that were all Enterprise. But Rene calls it Spike because of the Spike engines. Rene, as a test pilot, or at least former test pilot, has obviously thrown it and feels a lot of affection for it. Definitely. Hey, something I wanted to mention here, um, you know, I couldn't help but think about City on the Edge of Forever, that original series episode when Sung tried to run Renee over and Picard shoved her out of the way. I'm actually wondering if it was the right decision. Now, let me explain myself. The writers, I think, are suggesting that Picard and his crew might be messing things up here. When Rios tells Dr. Ramirez that they are the good guys, Ramirez says that the good guys never say that. And so maybe Picard and his crew don't realize that what they are trying to do maybe brings about the very dystopian timeline that they're trying to fix. Maybe they should have let Renee die like Kirk had to let Edith Keeler die. And now I know that's what Q wants. He wants Renee out of the picture. But I mean, it would be intriguing if it turned out that Q was actually on Picard's side here. I mean, that'd be really weird, but it would be intriguing. And, and in a way, I'm kind of rooting for that storyline. That was very suggestive, that bit of dialogue between Rios and Ramirez there. Rodney, you have often cited Riker in Next Generation when they have time travel 
stories of saying, well, do we do this or do we that? The decisions we make in trying to fix the timeline, we don't know what the right decision is. And if we make this decision, it might bring about the timeline we don't want. And um, I think they're teasing us with that. I'm not sure if all of the fans realize that, that there's this question of which act brings about the negative outcome. But I think they're trying to set us up on that. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Finally, in this section of the podcast, Rodney, it took me quite a bit to click on the meaning of the title. I had no idea about that. Actually, the first time I saw it in writing, and maybe somebody else wrote it wrong, the first time I saw the title was one for two, I think. But as it turns out, the title is two for one. And it took me quite a while, not even the first three times I watched the episode. That's a board designation, kind of like seven of nine, two entities in one body. And I believe it's not two of one, it's two for one. But we're talking about Agnes and the Queen, both in Agnes's body. And in this case, at the end of the episode, it appears that the Queen has pretty much taken over and she's off to do whatever nefarious thing she's, she's going to do. But uh, often the titles of the episodes are pretty straightforward and easy to click on. This one took me a bit, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, let's uh, shift gears here and move on to underlying meanings or messages in this episode. Well, Agnes has this struggle going on with the Borg Queen in her mind, and she is concealing that from her friends and from the others on the La Serena crew. She doesn't ask for help. And I think that's reminiscent of a lot of people who just don't ask for help when they have a problem. Maybe it's they're experiencing depression or psychological issues or even physical ailments that people prefer to ignore or to tough it out. You know, someone says, you know, you should really go see a doctor about that, or even Hmm. you should really go to the emergency room about that. And a lot of people, their natural inclination is to resist that. I'm not sure exactly why, but I've I've done that on occasion, you know, something I really should do. And I've at least procrastinated on it or hoped that the problem would go away. And of course it it never does. So I think in this way, the, the subplot about Agnes resonates with Renee's subplot because she also has a voice inside her head telling her things and and in this case telling her that she can't succeed or that she's not going to succeed. And I think that those are two parallel subplots that reinforce each other. Interesting also to contrast that with uh, season four of Discovery, which was all about, I think, the importance of getting help when you need it. Yeah. Including those caregivers need to ask. Yeah. Take care of themselves. So Agnes tells herself that not telling your crewmates is the best thing for everyone. And it reminds us of the repeated theme in Star Trek that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one, needs of the few or the needs of the one. Uh, But I think if you go back and scrutinize the Star Trek stories, the episodes where that has come up, the outcome of the episode is always that it's not the right the right way to think it's not Mm -hmm. beneficial thinking a lot of fans have quoted the statement but they don't always see how often star trek has refuted it you know for example you know in in the movies spock quotes the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one and he dies as a result but when kirk and the others go back to get him 
That refutes the postulate that the needs of the one, the needs of the few are always important is essentially what Kirk and the others demonstrate. And, and a lot of fans just don't see that. They say, oh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. And they don't see that that is not the message of Star Trek. Yeah. And I credit you for helping me see this because I don't think it was clear to me either at first. But if you go back and watch the original series, oftentimes the needs of the few are put ahead of the needs of the many. I'll just cite one episode, for example, The Lights of Zetar. That seems to be true also in uh, the later Star Trek movies. Think about, you know, Insurrection, where the Baku they need to be respected and you can't just relocate them for the good of all. And so, you know, sometimes maybe the needs of the many do outweigh the needs of the one. But Star Trek, I believe, has always put a premium on respect for the individual and their autonomy and their rights. And I think you've helped me see that, 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 that that's actually the more important principle here. Now, getting back to Gerardi here, I wrote down that, that line in which she lays out her thinking to the board queen. She says, I couldn't let the cop die, but I couldn't kill the one thing that could get us home either. It's the best thing for everyone. She's explaining why she shot the queen, but allowed the queen to find a way inside her own body. That is Gerardi's body. So, you know, at the end of the episode, it's beginning to look like maybe Girardi made the wrong choice. <laughs> so, you know, the utilitarian principle here might have misled her. On the other hand, you know, maybe she misapplied it or just miscalculated the consequences. Perhaps she just didn't foresee the queen taking control of her. And now she's walking the streets of L.A. And as smart as she is, and everyone acknowledges she's very smart, very intelligent, she may not have thought enough steps ahead. You know, if you're a good chess player, you think multiple steps ahead as to, as to what's going to happen. And maybe she didn't do that. I think that there were some conflicting thoughts in her. I think Girardi has been harassed by the queen. And I think Girardi is not liking that. And I think that part of her decision to shoot the queen may have been just exactly that, to protect herself from the queen. And we see how that all turned out. And I think also I would add to that, not only does she not be, like being harassed by the queen, but I think the writers are trying to tell us that Gerardi is vulnerable to something the queen is offering her. Gerardi worries that she is going to accept it. And she can't allow that to happen <laughs> because she's vulnerable to this temptation what the queen is offering her. And so we'll see how that works out. Last podcast, we talked about a few possibilities of how it might work out. And so we'll have to see there. Picard and Picard have an interesting discussion of fear. That is to say, Jean-Luc and Rene have a discussion of fear. We hear that sometimes those who shine the brightest feel the sting of fear and melancholy. Jean-Luc says that. Rene says, sometimes fear is a reminder you're not ready for something. And Jean-Luc counters that, that fear means you are smart and you understand that there is risk. And he says, even in the darkest circumstances, there's a light to be trusted and a way back, no matter what it takes. And if you think about Jean-Luc's career, he's been in plenty of situations that appeared to have very, very little hope, and it was grasping at straws how they got out of it. 
So um, he, he's a good one to understand how that works. I wanted to mention uh, there was one other instance in which fear was mentioned in this episode. The Borg Queen told Gerardi not to let fear get in the way of kissing Rios. And I'm not sure what all this adds up to. Fear is obviously a big theme in this season of Picard. Uh, we've seen it time and again, but I'm just not quite sure what they want to say about it yet. I imagine that there is likely to be a message, maybe not, well, maybe about fear, but about how we respond, how we react in the face mm -hmm. of fear. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the last few episodes here, leading up to presumably the big message uh, of the whole whole season shows up in the end. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it is interesting following this conversation when Renee is really just freaking out about being unqualified. Picard appeals to what is presumably one of Renee's biggest success stories, that is Flying Spike. And when he changes the subject to that shuttle, you can just see the instant transformation on her face from fear of the future to almost reveling in a success of the past. And I think Picard was smart about that. When he saw her fearing failure, he reasoned that remembering her successes would give her confidence. And it reminds me of the famous quote from JFK, that we don't go to the moon and do these other things because they're easy, but rather because they're hard. I think Sean Luke was not so much talking about how hard the technology and the physics and the science and all that is. But uh, he was talking about things emotionally, something that's hard emotionally too. But it is the emotional difficulty, the how hard it is emotionally that is what Renee is experiencing. And another thought here, when Raffi resists Tannen going into Picard's mind, I think that's another example of fear. I mean, Raffi obviously has a lot of affection for Picard and she's she is afraid of what might happen. And Rafi says, Picard is in a coma as a protective measure. Right. Talon replies that a lot of what we do is protective, but that doesn't mean it's good for us. And I think that statement, it was a short scene, but I think there's a lot of depth there. It goes a lot deeper than just the current situation with Picard. I think it is a broad statement about people in our society. I think, you know, in, in almost everything we do, it may be in our subconscious, but we're constantly protecting ourselves. Sometimes it's protecting ourselves from differing opinions. Sometimes it's protecting ourselves from people that would make us feel bad or people that would harm us. I think there is a lot of protection going on in our society, and not all of it is probably uh, healthy. Would it be going too far to suggest that they're making a statement about society here? I mean, I, I'm thinking about those first episodes when they were basically commenting on immigration, the border and all of that. And, you know, maybe the, the wall is a protective measure, but that doesn't mean that it's good for us. I think there is evidence that what the writers are telling us after this one thing changes, and we don't really know completely what it is yet, but after these one things thing changes, the society became more xenophobic and authoritarian to protect itself. Right. Or they, they thought they were protecting themselves. It's in the uh, slogan of the Confederation, a safe galaxy is a human galaxy. There's protection 
there's safety, there's a lot there going on in the society as a reflection of our own society. Well, why don't we move on to our final thoughts about this episode? And, and oftentimes we speculate a bit here about where we think uh, the season is going. And I mean, this episode ends with a cliffhanger. The Borg Queen, essentially in Agnes's body, the Borg Queen has taken over. The Borg Queen is AWOL on Earth in Los Angeles. And when I think about where that's going to go, I wonder, essentially what happened was the Borg Queen injected nanites into Agnes. We haven't heard the word nanites in this episode, but that's, that's what we've seen the Borg do. They have these tubules that come out of their knuckles and inject into people's necks or whatever. And we've, we've been told that that injects nanites in, which is the mechanism by which the Borg take over, take over an individual. And so when the Borg Queen injected nanites into Agnes last episode, did Agnes' body also end up with the ability to bring other people into a new collective? Is she going to walk around building up her own uh, little miniature army right there in Los Angeles? Shudder to think. You know, her stalking off with determination, her dress, you know, flying out in the wind. Uh, I, I could imagine that that might be a step that she's thinking about. It looks also like uh, possibly next episode or coming soon, we will finally see these events played out that Picard is partially remembering in his flashback. And this is very reminiscent to the first season of Picard. I remember there we had this vision of the admonition. And for several episodes in a row, we just got little quick, quick flashes of it. And eventually we got to the episode in which we saw it played out in real time. And um, so this this thing with Picard's memories and what happened to his mother is is very parallel to the way a subplot was was constructed in the first season of Picard. And I fully expect we'll see those scenes in full. And we got a few new shots in those flashbacks this week. There was one that even even looked like a ghost or a vampire or something like that. Yeah. No. Oh, weird. It's still not enough to say exactly what's going on there, frustratingly. But I I trust that we will be able to see it all in a few episodes. And I'm wondering if what we're going to find out is some of these memories are not true, that it's a child's reaction and a child's memories. And there, there are times that children remember something that didn't really happen. And when I think about my youngest memories, I have memories from when I was under three years old, but how accurate is my memory of those things? You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. So I'm, I'm wondering if we're going to find out that what Picard remembers is not necessarily just what happened. Right. And I think human memory in general is fairly unreliable. Yeah. So that, that may well be part of the storyline. And also, Rodney, we heard the announcement recently that several of the original Next Generation cast will return in the third and final season of Picard and return for more than cameos. And so I am wondering, for that third season of Picard, which they have just recently completed filming of, have they needed to reduce the size of the season one and two cast? There has been some speculation that Rios enjoys the 21st century so much he might stay. No, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, he loves the noise and the dirt and the food and the cigars. 
and he loves Dr. Ramirez too. Yeah, he obviously does does like her. Agnes as in effect a new Borg queen. We speculated last week that maybe she is the Borg queen whose face was hidden, who requests Federation membership. All we have to do is travel in time first. And so Agnes as the new Borg queen who has obviously exerted some of her influence in the in the two for one mind. Maybe she'll be so busy with Borg administrative duties, you might say, that she won't be around next season. <laughs> and in the first episode, we also saw that Soji seems to have her own project she's working on, whereas the actress is playing Corey in, in this season. So I'm wondering if, if some of them may be gently written out of the storyline or only have some cameo appearances next season. Uh, we know that Seven of Nine is in it, along with the most of the other Next Generation original cast members. And so I wonder if we're seeing a storyline that will gently trim the current cast in order to make room for the Next Generation uh, ensemble cast. There's not enough screen time for all of them, I'm afraid. So I, I would say people get ready. We like ensemble casts where all of the characters have worthwhile things to do. They're not just in the background with, with a word or two per episode. Um, yes. But you're right. You could get so big that it might not be manageable. And what is unfortunate about this is I've been thinking about it, Michael, is I kind of feel like I've just met these people. And I just, I don't, I'm not sure if their stories are finished yet. You know. Well, but we have Star Trek books and we have Star Trek graphic <laughs> novels and comic books and the characters will be around for a long time. Trust me, they may yeah. not be on screen, but they'll be around. They'll be around. The final thought I have is there was a quick scene in which kind of ironically or joking, Renee invites Picard to come along on Shango. And of course, he says, maybe another time. Is that foreshadowing? I had this thought a few, mm -hmm. few episodes ago, might Shango and La Serena encounter each other in trans Saturn space? I, it would be fun to see that, frankly. And, and it, you know, she's saying this to Picard because, she, you know, she acknowledges that, that he's been a big help to her. The calming influence. Her, yeah. Yeah. Recommit to this mission. Uh, and it would be a fun irony if, if they actually ended up meeting each other in space. It is obvious from what we've been told earlier that she goes, she finds what appears to be sentient life, brings it back to Earth. And there is no hint that she was the only one who survived because she had to convince her mission commander to bring it back. So if they do meet, either it has to be hidden from everybody other than, than Renee, or everybody needs to agree to keep it secret, which is not impossible. And maybe they're just not going to go that way, but it sure would be nice to see La Serena in space more than just in the last five minutes when they go home. Yeah, I agree. I agree. One thing I'd like to end with is just that, you know, as I'm thinking about this, I honestly don't really know where this season is heading and where it's going to end up. But I also don't feel as if they're withholding too many details from us for too long. Um, I think it's good that this is somewhat unpredictable, and I still feel as if I'm speculating about where it's going to go. 
Yeah, you know, and I, I have to say in the most recent season of Discovery, we were kind of feeling that they were stretching the story out longer than yes. it needed to be. Like they had less content than they had episodes and and it was more incremental each time. I'm not getting that feel from Picard. Obviously, the story is playing itself out, but I'm not feeling that they're taking side missions or doing things that don't contribute directly to progression of the storyline. Right. Well, we will see how this unfolds uh, with you, our listeners. But for now, I guess we're going to bring this to a close. And we'd like to thank you for joining us this week. And we will be back with our look at episode seven of Picard next week. Now, you can keep track of our new episodes and other announcements on our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy, or you can subscribe directly at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.